You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. The story of the UK is an economy that has got real momentum. What is broken can be repaired. What is ruined can be rebuilt. UK inflation is becoming much more homegrown. We have huge potential as an economy in the UK. This is a time to tell Israel there is a path to peace. Our plan for the British economy is working, but the work is not done. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Welcome to the last Bloomberg podcast of 2023. UK politics certainly hasn't been boring this year, has it? We've been kept on our toes at Bloomberg. It's been a year that's tested Rishi Sunak, a fairly new prime minister uh, at the time, pledging to bring comfort to those feeling apprehensive about the rest of 2023. Have a listen to what he had to say. Yet I know many of you look ahead to 2023 with apprehension. I want you to know that as your Prime Minister, I will work night and day to change that, and quickly. Not just by providing relief and peace of mind for the months to come, although we will, but also by changing our country and building a better future for our children and grandchildren. A future that restores optimism, hope and pride in Britain. I wonder if he had a time machine and whether the Prime Minister would take back those words. Some might argue that those feelings of public anxiety actually haven't gone away at all. It definitely hasn't been the smoothest of sailing for the government in 2023. We've seen seven by-elections, a near miss for the government over the now infamous Rwanda bill and some incredibly challenging economic conditions characterised by an intensive round of interest rate hikes from the Bank of England and a cost of living crunch. Not to mention, of course, the challenges facing us from beyond our shores, geopolitical tension, war, conflict being another key trend over the past year. It does beg the question, how will history look back at 2023? Is it the year that Tories lost control? And what about 2024? We've recently heard confirmation that the UK will have a general election at some point next year. Who are the 
political power players emerging in the run-up to it. Now, today we're going to attempt to take stock of an extraordinary year and look back at what is set to be a busy 2024 in Westminster. Now, be warned, Kitty is the last journalist standing uh, as Parliament went to recess. She and her team of UK government reporters have covered virtually every move in Westminster over the last two months. So Ewan Potts and I rang our own Kitty Donaldson at her desk, hard at work still in the House of Commons, to ask her for her reflections on the year. Kitty, you of all people are still in Westminster. We come to the end of 2023 and to a conversation looking back on on politics. And I'm going to do something awful. I'm going to remind you of what you wrote way back 12 months ago. And this is what Mm. you said, looking ahead to, to the year. I'm on the lookout for Keir Starmer to try and recreate some of the cultural groundswell of enthusiasm for a Labour government that Tony Blair managed to create in the mid 1990s. That whole 12 months has been and gone now, Kitty. Did Keir Mm. Starmer manage to do it? Is there a groundswell? How much enthusiasm is there? Oh, well, he's won a few by-elections, but no, you're right, I was completely wrong. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not making any predictions this year, Caroline. No, oh, no. You're not getting anything out. You're not, you're not getting anything out of me. I'm like, I'm like the world's worst mystic Meg. Oh. No, no predictions for next year. Yep, that's it. Oh dear. <laughs> you're on strike now, Kitty Donaldson. Like everyone else in this country. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It has also been a year of strikes. Of course, that's how 2023 started. And the other thing that kicked off the year was Rishi Sunak making those five major pledges. Can you remember them all? Five is kind of a tricky number. So here's a reminder. Five promises. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, cut waiting lists and stop the boats. Those are the people's priorities. They are your government's priorities. And we will either have achieved them or not. I want to ask you about the the number five, because it does seem that the year's been rather dominated by this number. The Prime Minister tried to set his agenda to lay out a stall for the year with those five pledges. And then, of course, Keir Starmer, not to be outdone, came in with his five priorities. What do you make of the wisdom of that as a political strategy, given that... uh, uh, many people suggest that he has not met four of them. Yeah, you're right. It's a bit Maoist, isn't it? Like, where's everyone's little red books? I think it's not a bad strategy in that you need something for voters to judge, right? And otherwise it can become this sort of amorphous massive policy that no one really understands. I remember talking to a Tory strategist who said, we, we basically want to bore everyone into submission, that we want everyone to know these these five pledges and therefore once everyone knows them, we've basically won the argument. And it sort of doesn't even... It doesn't even really matter necessarily if if we fulfil them. I mean, of course, it does matter in the in the sense that they want to fulfil them. But but just voters knowing what they what the Tories stand for is 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 enough in some senses. Mm-hmm. So what has happened this year is that Labour have taken a different strategy to the one I thought they'd take. I thought that they would spread their wings a bit and and explain more about them. But actually, they've done the opposite. What they've done is turn themselves into a very small target. So that the Tories try and, you know, take aim at them and, and, and miss because the Tories are doing such a good job of making the case for why voters shouldn't vote for them, that, that why should Labour get in on the act, right? Just let the kind of like hang themselves by their own petard. That, that is Labour strategy. Whether that continues into the new year, I think <laughs> the hesitation to make a prediction because I'm so wrong, but, but, <laughs> but in an election year, which we know it will be next year, I think people are going to start turning their attention to Labour 
and mm. they will have to make the case. They will have to make the case. How that case is made is is like is it more of the same or do we see more more of what Labour are thinking? I don't, I don't know because I mean there's only so, I mean maybe Labour follow what the Tories do right just kind of hammer home their key messages. Like mm. do we get more interviews where where Keir Starmer says I'm the son of a toolmaker? I mean let's hope not from you know. My, my point That's of view. got to be one of the words of the year, hasn't it? Um, no, look, I thought that the um, prediction that you made actually was really fascinating in, in the sense that, um, that that kind of cultural groundswell that you were talking about hasn't really happened. And actually, Kitty, I remember the, the Blair era and it was really remarkable, you know, music and art at that time and the whole sort of political scene changed. It doesn't, feels like such a different Britain now, doesn't it? And such a difficult economic backdrop because at the time under Blair it was about change but the economic backdrop didn't feel as bleak I think as it feels now I mean looking back over the years there is there a word or a phrase that you would pick out to sort of describe this year I mean miserable miserable oh is that really the word well economically cost of living right Mm, everyone's had their purse strings tightened in the 90s, you're right, Labour definitely benefited from a booming economy in 97. If Labour win next year, which they probably will, they're not going to benefit in the same way. And in fact, the Tories kind of keep changing the goalposts for Labour. Remember that famous phrase, the Badgers keep changing the goalposts, which was absolutely hilarious. And for those of you who don't know the reference there, that phrase came all the way back in 2013 when at the time the DEFRA minister Owen Paterson was asked by the BBC why the Conservative badger cull had uh, had not gone to plan. Have a listen to what he said. You didn't estimate the number of badgers in the area correctly in the first place. You haven't reached the 70% target of killing badgers that you set yourself at the beginning of this. Now the trial has to be extended. You're moving the goalposts on all fronts. No, that's not right at all. The badgers have moved the goalposts. The the Tories seem to be doing that too. For instance, they... On the infected blood scandal, the Tories have said yes. Some some estimates between ten and twenty billion. Yes, there should be a payout for victims of infected blood. But by the way, that's going to be a matter for Rachel Reeves to do. And if you spend twenty billion on in- infected blood victims, mm. you know how can you possibly spend twenty eight billion on on greening up uh, the economy? You can't spend the same money twice. And also, if the Tories cut taxes, does Rachel Reeves turn around and, and say actually I'm going to put taxes up again? They're setting all these poo traps for, as in Winnie the Pooh, for Labour. That's, that was for benefit for international listeners. <laughs> like, what, think, what is she talking about? <laughs> no, I think I got the bear jokes and uh, yeah, uh, yeah. The sticks over a very large hole. So, so we're just mm. about to head into our, our 20th by-election, which according to the BBC's uh, accounting with Peter Bone in, uh, in Wellingborough, these by-elections have really become quite regular, haven't they? And, and all rather kind of unwelcome events uh, f- for the government. What's kind of interesting about election by elections is that they take on a kind of greater significance than than perhaps they deserve. One of the biggest in terms of significance this year was Uxbridge and Ryslip, which was Boris Johnson's seat. That became a kind of single issue election in the sense that it was fought on ULES, the low emission zone expansion. The Tories held the seat, even though Labour pushed quite hard. And then the Tories took a kind of lesson from it, which was voters don't want any more of the green agenda. That informed Rishi Sunak stepping back from the green agenda. And we saw that quite significantly in the autumn of this year when he, he basically said, we're not going to go as fast with our with our green reforms. And and I think the Tories thought, and, and Labour took from this as well, that 
you know, you're not going to want people aren't people on no incomes and you know people feeling the squeeze aren't going to want to replace their boilers as quickly as it, it would be needed to in order for Britain to keep its commitment to be a kind of world leader on on the green agenda mm. and. And and Labour have taken from that as well. Like if you look at look at um, Ed Miliband, every time he talks about Labour's Labour's green agenda, he he starts with the economic argument. He says Labour policies would help bring back bring down bills. And Rachel Reeves has pushed back the phasing for green jobs because they know that they've got to bring voters with them, right? Yeah. Um, and if you and if you're feeling the pinch, boilers come second, I think. Kitty, when you raise the issue of energy prices, I mean that of course goes back mm. to the two major wars that we've also been talking about, I mean, the ongoing war in Ukraine that was the initial kind of trigger Mm -hmm. for the big jump in in energy prices. And then further to that, the Israel-Hamas war, which is now Mm -hmm. three months in. So when you talk about, you know, it being a miserable year, it's it's been, you know, on on a geopolitical front, incredibly uh, difficult and, and miserable. Mm-hmm. The war, though, particularly in Israel, has has caused, in some senses, much more um, difficulty for the Labour Party than it has maybe for, for the Conservatives. How do you think yeah. Starmer's handled that and what do you think we might see next year as the, 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 the ground offensive and what Israel is doing is, you know, becomes ever more severe? You're, you're absolutely right. And sort of Labour's historical backing for Palestine and Gaza came to the forefront because of, because of the war over there. And actually, someone told me that Keir Starmer was going to make a speech in the year. Uh, I mean, uh, Rishi Sunak will as well, right? They, they kind of do these sort of reset yeah. speeches in the new year, new year, new speeches. And someone told me, and I don't know if this is true, that Starmer's will be about setting out his position, his exact position on Israel and Gaza. And that's, I think, is slightly odd because he spent such a long time trying to draw back from the argument. Why reinstate the argument again? But we'll wait and see. Perhaps he'll talk about the economy instead. And actually, you're right that the Tories did do, do what Labour are doing on the other side, mm. you know, to step back and let Labour fight it out between themselves. It was an interesting point, but having had that argument publicly, and we all know where lots of Labour MPs stand on it, Will that carry on into a Labour government? I mean, who knows? But probably not, right? It'll be something else. Uh, it's such a totemic issue. It, it is. But then also, if you raise the New Year speeches, I mean, are we in for yet more reset moments? We've had a lot of reset moments <laughs> and all sorts of policy issues. I mean, is, is that, is that I not a thread as well? Reversals and U-turns, but resets. So I feel like, you know, how you fix your computer at home, right? How you fix your, your home printer, switch it off and switch it on again. That's that's what Rishi Sunak's been doing throughout the year, and whether it's working or not, mm, I don't I don't think it is. It's sort of baked in now, isn't it? The Tories are kind of many points behind in the polls, and I was talking to a Lib Dem strategist this morning who was saying the political class haven't quite caught up with the fact that the Labour is so far ahead. That's sort of baked in, and that means that a Labour landslide is is looking increasingly likely, and we just also need to keep our eye on the bigger picture here and focus around the kind of the slightly fiddly bits at the edges and I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors in but because it's been a really busy year and try and see the wood for the trees basically which is labour win baked in K- kitty uh, was this the year that culture wars went away or has it just gone onto the back burner it's something we, we keep keep expecting to kind of explode as, as a salient issue but i guess it's the economics isn't it which has put it aside but do you think culture culture war issues are going to come back next year or or are voters busy with other stuff i think the, the parties will be quite trying to fight their own individual elections so on the the agenda war will be interesting 
for the Tories at their conference did try and make it about culture wars. They were talking about 15-minute cities, which is one of these tropes of conspiracy theorists, and they were talking about meat tax. They were trying to say that Labour had a meat tax policy, which is not true. The Lib Dems will try and fight it on sewage and the NHS. I mean, not, not at the same time, two different issues. Labour will try and focus on the economy and cost of living, and the NHS probably as well. But the Tories will try and do it about Rwanda and migration. And I think that's partly because if you look at where their support comes from, if you think that the Tories are trying to run a sort of dual campaign, A, hold on to their seats in the so-called blue wall, i.e. commuter belt around London, places like uh, Dominic Raab's seat, Isha and Walton and Jeremy Hunt's seat. Oh, sorry, yeah. Southwest, sorry, thank you very much. That is one strand of their of their strategy. But also the other strand is to try and not lose the, the red wall up in the north. Red wall, former Labour seats that the Tories took in 2019. Mm. And if you look at the polling, red wall voters do put immigration much higher than anyone else. So you can see why the Tories are making such a song and dance about Rwanda and the Rwanda bill and trying to get it through because it appeals in those sorts of areas. That's what's framing strategy for the election. Kitty, do you think that the Tories have reconciled that problem, though? It's quite tricky, isn't it? The needs of those voters, the new voters they won for the first time in, in those, those places in the Midlands and the North, and people in Surrey, they're really mm. quite different, aren't they? It's a bit of an unsolvable problem. Yes, and there's nowhere more clear than that than, than in planning law and building new homes, right? Like, there's nothing more likely to make you a Tory voter than becoming a homeowner. Up in northern conurbations, MPs, Red Wall MPs, Red Wall Tory MPs are saying, please build more homes. Please, come on, come on, come on, build more homes. And then on the other side of the party in southern leafy districts around London, they're saying, please don't build any more homes because we don't want them on our brownfield sites, we don't want them on the green belt because it turns voters off. And that was particularly true in Chesham and Amersham, which mm. was prompted by the death of, of Tory MP Cheryl Gillan. And the Lib Dems swooped in and said, no more homes. And the Tories lost it, lost the seat, because the, the government was saying that, that they were going to build, build more in the area. It's a, real, it's a real, real issue. How do you keep the twin tracks of promising more homes in, in one area and saying actually no more homes in another? That's funny, isn't it? So kind of talking across each other, talk, you know, kind of running their own race in their own separate lane is kind of an interesting idea. Yes. And I guess in a in a much more fractured media landscape where the way that people get their information is coming in so many, you know, different um, formats and we're all in our sort of own little bubble, I suppose, a lot of us on social mm. media, maybe that applies too. I mean, Thinking about that, like fracturing and so on. Also, I won't ask you, Kitty Donaldson, whether you've still got your WhatsApp messages from the start of the year. <laughs> I think Kitty changed her phone and she wasn't able to retrieve oh, the data. Oh, really? Do you yeah, know that, do you? I believe so. She's changed my number about five times this year, yeah. yeah, yeah. All gone, unfortunately. Your famed TikTok. Yeah, also, such a shame. Such a shame. <laughs> ah, joking aside at the expense of a few politicians. Uh, let's uh, talk, think about that fracturing for a second because I think what surprised mm. me too, and um, we've had him on... Um, Bloomberg Radio actually is Nigel Farage uh, he was there when yeah. you and I Kitty were at the Conservative Party conference and he was actually a figure that in some ways I think at the beginning of the year we weren't thinking much about really you know obviously Brexit supporting and so on and um, mm. you know leading 
another political party or not leading it but certainly kind of behind the creation of another political party but we weren't thinking that much about him now all of a sudden by the end of the year we are quite a lot aren't we or how much do you think the conservatives have got this problem of just having two quite fractured wings at least two fractured wings within the conservatives what you've seen is the tory party looking ahead to what it looks like after the election and the way this has manifested itself is people putting themselves forward in that space. So Swella Brabham and then former Home Secretary is trying to occupy a space that Farage once held. And then Farage is coming back and, you know, going in the jungle on I'm a Celebrity and trying to occupy that space as well. And it's all about who owns the argument for the Tories if and when they lose the election. And that is why you're seeing the original and the best, as it were, Nigel Farage trying to reinvent himself to appeal to Gen Z and millennials on, on these shows that's much more popular than hanging out in Parliament. But, but then that would imply yeah, the Conservatives sort of have accepting that they are going to lose. I think lots of them know they're going to lose, right? There's a narrow path back to a hung parliament, which is the Tories regain six points in the polls. It just seems to me that more and more Tories throw their hands up in the air and joke about three of them being left and John Hayes is the new leader. John Hayes has got one of the safest seats in the country. Or Kevin Badenoch becomes the new leader because when the chips fall down on the other side of the election, that the, the party will be more right wing. And, and the party will probably tack to the right because it always generationally does, right? Just how Labour tacks the left a bit and then some sort of centrist comes along and pulls it to the centre and the Tories will tack to the right a bit and then until some centrist like David Cameron or someone of that ilk comes and pulls it to the centre. I think that was what's quite interesting about Boris Johnson's departure in the middle of the year which prompted the Uxbridge by-election, is that he finally got his comeuppance and, and the Privileged Committee said, you've, you've lied to Parliament and you've got to go. And he, of course, quit in a half before they could expel him. But it shows you that Britain is not yet America, I think, that, that actually we're not in the kind of Trumpian space that people perhaps were slightly worried about. But then never say never for Boris, right? Like he's got a new year, he's starting a new gig and on GB News and he's got his column in the mail on Saturday. And there's a certain bunch of Tories who have dinner in rules, restaurant, you know, roast beef and talk about, you know, <laughs> Boris coming back like Winston Churchill, you know, send for Churchill, send for Boris, King over the water, he'll come back. But he's a, he's one of his, I was talking to one of his um, former staffers the other day who was saying he's putting a lot of hay in the loft. And what they meant by that was making a lot of money. I don't think he's interested at the moment. And why would you come back and do the hard slog as leader of the opposition? It's just not very glamorous, is it? But you know, but then talking. But listen, was, talking of comings and goings, you know. Yes, mm-hmm. Boris. I mean, I'm amazed that we we got you know so far into the program before talking about Boris Johnson. Given I know she's I'm dominated. Yeah, <laughs> shade. Okay, but then you know, talk, talk of comings and go. You know, sackings and quittings. There's no been no shortage of those from well, Zahawi, yeah. Rob. Braverman to, to give maybe the top three, but also Robert Jenrick, uh, uh, Zach Goldsmith, of course, yes. with that, uh, that letter. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there are others. Yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of churn, hasn't there? And that kind of instability in politics. And I was I was chatting to, to someone in the Labour Party the other day who'd just been at COP. And they'd been, ch- you know, they'd been talking to the Chinese government and the Chinese have been saying, we never know who to deal with in Britain. And I think that is one of Labour's 
they're not they're not sort of saying it's time for boring but they're saying it's time for stability and if that looks a bit boring we're happy with that i was talking to a friend of mine the other night another journalist who was saying there comes a point when you like what's good for copy as we say what's good for news is not good for the country maybe it's time for a return to an era when when things are more stable boring politics Speaking of which, not your life, though, covering politics, as you say, Kitty, cannot have been boring this year. I wonder whether you could give us a little window into covering UK politics. Um, what's mm-hmm. been the hardest story that you've covered? What has surprised you most, I think, about this year? What have you learned about Rishi Sunak? As I say, one year in office, you know, mm. you meet and mix and mingle with all these people. And I'm sure you're going to all the events and parties. And so you get to see them really up close. What do you think about the toughest story, I suppose, to cover this year? We've not had the kind of the crazy that was Liz Truss, which was, I mean, incredibly fun to cover for a short period of time. It's been kind of... Let, let me give you a little okay. vignette into into my life, okay? So I'm sitting here in our Westminster office in three jumpers and a coat because the heating doesn't work. And it's all... I know. And you think, oh, it's so glamorous in politics. What happens quite a lot is the, the lights go off because things keep fusing. There's building works going on outside. Big Ben is bonging the other side. And then Steve Bray, the protester, comes along and turns his music on full blast. And you sit there and you think, how is anyone supposed to work in these, you know, ridiculous... Oh, and then a bit of plaster fell off the ceiling the other day on one of my colleagues' head. And you think, this this place is an absolute joke. It's an absolute... I mean, and but they're meant to be refurbishing Parliament. And, you know, there's been this great debate about how much money it's going to take to refurbish. I mean, Westminster Hall, a thousand years old and all this history in the Palace of Westminster. Mm. The thing is, right, it, it would be much quicker and easier if you decanted everyone out of here and just did it properly really quickly. Well, not really quickly, but more quickly. Um, but no one wants to do that because if you're an MP and you think, oh, I might only be here for five years, you think, I want my turn on the green benches. They won't decant it and do it more quickly. So you just get this piecemeal approach to repair and regeneration. And that's why, basically, I'm sitting here and looking like kind of the, the Michelin man in all my jumpers. Kitty Donaldson, we hope that you have a hot toddy at some point over the festive period, that you come back yeah, in the new it, year revived. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, Kitty Donaldson, our UK political editor, with always uh, fascinating insights and great reporting over the course of this 12 months. No doubt she'll be back on the UK Politics podcast with us uh, next year. Always such a delight to have her on, even in the freezing cold. <laughs> Drinking diet coach is the yeah, canteen is closed. That's it from us for today and today for 2023. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. We've done incredibly well with listeners over the year. Now, this special episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Max Green. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'll be back with the rest of the team, Ewan Potts, Lizzie Burden and Stephen Cowell in 2024. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.